It's the economy, stupid. That's one of the most famous lines from political campaign history. Coined by a Southerner, by the way. And it feels especially relevant right now as millions of Americans are out of work because of the coronavirus pandemic. To help, earlier this year, Congress passed the biggest stimulus package in history. But that money isn't being applied equitably. No, it's not. More than $500 billion has been distributed to American businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program. But most of that money has gone to white businesses that already had access and influence. Even though white-owned businesses have only declined by 17% during this pandemic, compared to 41% decline among black-owned businesses. So to be sure, economic insecurity and uncertainty will be on the minds of millions of folks as they head through the polls in less than two months to select the leaders they think can put us on the right course. So we have a pair of guests this week to make us smart about the economy, and particularly how black and brown folks, and thus the South as a whole, have been hit historically and especially hard. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm R.L. Nave. And I'm John Hammontree. And today, we're basically at the kitchen table talking about bread and butter issues of the economy, and specifically how structural racism has historically cut black and brown folks out of reaping the full advantages of living in the world's richest nation. On our show, we have Dr. Stephanie Yates, a professor of finance at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Diane Standert, a senior vice president of the Hope Policy Institute in Mississippi, which aims to help people in underserved areas grow wealth. Dr. Yates explains how today's wealth gap can be explained by a history of policies that have deliberately cut black and brown people out of opportunity to accumulate wealth, and how some policies aimed to address that disparity have backfired due to a lack of oversight. And then Diane Standard outlines how this largest stimulus package in American history could exacerbate those disparities if we aren't careful and could help close them if we act wisely. So let's talk money on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Dr. Stephanie Yates, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you. We are in the middle of a major recession spurred by pandemic. And a lot of people are wondering, of course, what individual decisions they can make to survive this. But what we've seen throughout history is that, you know, you can save, you can make individual decisions, but in some ways, the wealth gap kind of has been created by broader systemic issues, by federal policy, by forces that are beyond the control of, of an individual. Right now, we're at a point where, before the pandemic, at least, Black Americans made up 13% of the nation's population, but possessed just 4% of the country's wealth. Can you walk us through the history of how we got to this point? Sure. I guess one place to start is to think about how that wealth is stored. And that varies somewhat across demographics, but in the African-American community in particular, wealth is typically stored in their home. And so when you think about the history of African-Americans in this country, particularly with regard to home ownership, it's been a difficult road. And so that those difficulties have certainly led to significant differences in home ownership rates between African-Americans and Latinos and others. And so if that is the primary store of wealth, then you can see how one source of difficulty in terms of home ownership can lead to a wealth gap. Well, and obviously, you know, before the Civil War, the vast majority of African Americans were in bondage and, you know, were being used to increase white Americans' wealth. 
whether directly in the South through ownership or indirectly, you know, in the North through the textile factories that were based off of Southern cotton. After the war, you do see some Black Southerners and some Black Americans come into possession of land. And sometimes you see that land being seized violently by white Southerners and white Americans in retribution. Let's flash forward a little bit to early 1900s, when the United States is really stressing home ownership as part of the New Deal, trying to pull people out of the recession. At that time, you know, in cities like Birmingham, my understanding is that poor Black Americans and poor white Americans were equally being mistreated in, in some of the steel mills. But systemic policies were put in place that gave those white steel workers maybe a better path out of the mines than some of the black steel workers, whether it was through home ownership or through better wages or, or things like that. Sure. There were so many policies either explicitly or implicitly in place at that time that made real differences economically for blacks and whites. So on the home ownership side, blacks and whites tended for various reasons to live in very different neighborhoods. Because of that, there was this practice that, you know, so many of us have heard of called redlining, where it was pretty easy to just take a, a red marker on a map and outline where the black neighborhoods were and where the white neighborhoods were. Unfortunately, that process of redlining then carried over to the credit markets and into financing and into actually many other programs, meaning that if we drew a line around this particular community and indicated that this was a predominantly African-American community, that meant that funding credit was not going to flow into that neighborhood. And so that deepens that gap and, and encourages that disparity across races. One, if you look at those maps for a city like Birmingham, Black neighborhoods were also more likely to be zoned for industrial use, and that leads to higher health costs, which you know obviously cuts into Black wealth, and it compounds over time. In the wake of the last recession, we also saw that Black and brown Americans were, were hit pretty substantially through some programs that I guess on paper were designed to give more Black and brown people a path to home ownership. You know, how does a policy that you know, seems like it would be addressing an inequity further deepen an inequity? Absolutely. So it was recognized that there was this disparity in home ownership. And so we start to try to figure out mechanisms and programs to address that. And so in that search for ways to create more equity, subprime lending came about. And because the thought was, well, the lenders are saying that they want to make loans, but they, didn't, they don't have qualified borrowers for the products that they're offering. And so if we create new products that are designed to help this group, then we can increase home ownership. We won't see the tremendous wealth disparity that we see. But the trouble with that is, you know, it's like no good deed goes unpunished. We're trying to do something to fix the problem. We're trying to do something to help the folks who are really trying to do the right thing, really trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But those types of programs, and this is exactly what we saw, are ripe for abuse. And so what we started to see was that we were making loans to subprime borrowers because at that time, the 2006, 7, and 8, 
the definition of a subprime loan or a subprime lender or a subprime borrower started fluctuating a bit. And, and eventually the, the definition was just a subprime loan was a loan made to a subprime borrower. What does that mean? But what ended up happening was those programs were ripe for abuse, meaning very, very high fees, very, very high interest rates, because the justification was, well, if you could have qualified for a prime mortgage, then you would have, and you wouldn't have to pay these fees. And jumbled up in this was this kind of undercurrent that we've seen for many, many years, if not decades, where it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that this group that had not had adequate access to credit markets and capital markets, whether it's home ownership or small business, began to feel that, well, I'm not even going to try. You know, I, I'm not even going to apply for a small business loan or a home mortgage because I know I'm going to be denied. And so a, a strange kind of offshoot of subprime lending is not only were the subprime borrowers taken advantage of in terms of high fees and higher interest rates, many of those borrowers could have qualified for a more traditional mortgage, but just assume they could not. And those lenders did not share that with them and did not move them to a more appropriate product. So we've just had a lot of abuses going on in that time. And then, you know, it's kind of like that perfect storm. There were so many negative elements occurring. And so another element that was occurring was that we had this financial market that was craving these securitized mortgages and craving these investment opportunities. And so access to credit was pretty free and easy. There may have been high fees, there may have been a premium for certain borrowers, but you know it was pretty easy to get mortgages at that time, which meant that it was fairly likely that defaults were going to happen, and they did. And so when we have that quantity of mortgage activity and the lowering of the standards, the kind of the greed and the excess in terms of the fees and the premiums that were being collected, it turned out to be a bit of a house of cards. And so then we started to see in 2008 and, and later the just the huge run up in defaults and foreclosures. And oftentimes they were, we saw those more frequently in the African-American community because the terms of the deal were pretty bad. And so it was easy to default on a loan where the terms were somewhat set against you, given your personal situation. Well, and in some instances, you know, there were some black borrowers who were designated as subprime. And you mentioned that in some cases it was a self-selection, but in some cases, banks were identifying Black borrowers of equal or even in some instances greater income to comparable white borrowers and directing them to subprime loans as well. It was a new form of redlining where you know you kind of shepherd certain borrowers into a particular direction and certain borrowers were just kind of programmed or or preconditioned not to question the the direction of the lender. And we've seen some stories going around even recently that black homeowners homes will get appraised for lower amounts, black neighborhoods certainly getting appraised for lower amounts than 
in some white neighborhoods. And it, it's a tough cycle to break out of. What have we seen, you know, kind of in the wake of that 2008, 2009 financial crisis? Have there been any efforts to address some of these systemic issues? Well, certainly there have been a lot of reforms because another element in that housing debacle in the late 2000, 2007, 2008 was lack of information, lack of understanding of the products that these borrowers were were signing up for. And so we have a lot more disclosures now. We have a lot more requirements on the lenders in terms of disclosure and disclosure within a prescribed period of time before initiating the contract. Um, there also, you mentioned appraisals and, and the potential for less than accurate appraisals given the demographic of the borrower. And so some of that was found to be tied to the, the relationship between the appraiser and the lender. Meaning, for example, a lender may say, I may not have made loans to African-Americans or in a particular neighborhood, but it's not because I didn't try. Look at all of these applications that I took, but they just weren't qualified or the loan-to-value ratio didn't fit my portfolio. Well, some of that may have been because they were working with the appraiser and giving the appraiser an indication up front of where they needed that loan to come in, depending upon what they wanted in their portfolio or whether or not they wanted that borrower in their portfolio because of their demographic. And so some of the reforms that we have seen have required a little bit more independence between the lender and the appraiser such that there is not a relationship between the two. And so that the appraiser is supposed to have complete independence in what they're doing. Obviously, the states that we are focused on, the deep southern states, tend to be among the poorest states in the country, have high rates of poverty, which leads to a whole variety of other factors, high rates of chronic illness. Everything is economics, I guess. But it would seem that an injection of capital into Black communities in states like Alabama and Mississippi would pay dividends in terms of benefiting everybody communities like the Black Belt, which might be struggling. And yet that is a conversation that anytime it comes up, you know, whether it's in the form of, of a word like reparations or just in the form of affirmative action, we constantly see elected officials balk at programs like that. Have there been studies that indicate, you know, what Black-owned businesses benefit to communities would be in a state like Alabama or Mississippi? Oh, absolutely. When you look at, you know, I was reading a study earlier that said just depending on how you define small business, 99.9% of businesses in the country are small businesses. And a significant portion of those are African-American or owned by Black, Brown owners and women. And so supporting those businesses supports the economy in general because of those proportions. The trouble, though, is how do you do it? The difficulty is that it's not just a matter of capital. There's also a matter of education. And so just walking up and down the street and handing out cash isn't going to solve the problem. And a lot of the research is leaning towards the CDFIs, these community development financial institutions, because They are really those boots on the ground organizations. They're typically linked to the big commercial banks. 
And they're the ones that are working with the minority and women-owned businesses to help provide them that education and develop those relationships. You know, when you think about traditional banking, traditional commercial financial institutions, they're not really geared towards supporting these small businesses and certainly not the very, very small micro-business mom-and-pop shops. And so they need those smaller partners. And so any type of program, at least according to what the research is indicating, a program designed to prop up or boost or certainly in an economic downturn to help those small businesses needs to be coordinated through some type of entity that is working with those businesses on a day-to-day basis. And so some of the trouble that we have as you said, fast forwarding to today, is that if funds are dispersed through the commercial banks or on that higher level where those black and brown businesses don't have the relationships, then they're still going to effectively be shut out. And that speaks to that history that we spoke about before. If you haven't wanted to lend to me for the past 30 or 40 years, you know, to me or to my parents and my grandparents that started this business, that hasn't necessarily changed just because it's 20 years later. We're still a thriving business, but we may not necessarily be on the scale of your typical bank customer. And so these small businesses need a voice in the the financial sector. And there is some precedence for this, right? I mean, we like to think of America as, you know, a meritocracy and a pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture, people that are self-made entrepreneurs. But in the wake of World War II, for returning soldiers, white soldiers were able to get paths to college, were able to get a lot of economic benefits that black veterans were not able to get. And that created what we kind of think of as as the American middle class in that 50s, 60s, 70s period. So we have seen these types of government infusions work. It's just at the period that they were in use, they left out black and brown Americans by design. Sure. When you think back to going back to home ownership, and when you think back to historical efforts to boost home ownership and starting the VA programs and FHA programs, those were often tied to redlining. And so these great federal programs that were designed to increase home ownership really weren't meant to increase home ownership for minorities. They were really meant to increase home ownership at that time for a certain group of people that didn't include black and brown potential homeowners. And my understanding is that even programs like Social Security, when Congress was striking that deal with Franklin Roosevelt, you know, left out occupations in the South that tended to be dominated by black and brown Southerners. Absolutely. And to perpetuate all of that, whether it's home ownership or social security or any other type of government program, we have these kind of covert mechanisms like racial steering, where you steer black and brown workers into certain job classifications because ultimately that will cut them off from certain benefits, certain programs. You steer black and brown potential homeowners to certain neighborhoods because those neighborhoods are redlined or receive a limited amount of funding or they have less access to 
the funding and the programs and the services that other areas receive. And it's a cumulative effect, right? You know, you try to address one thing, like maybe inequity in schools or inequity in, you know, in business loans, but you have decades and if not centuries of, of the cumulative effect of that disparity. Exactly. And we're still seeing the remnants of that when we see, you know, I don't know how many different school districts we have in just this area. And you think about, you look back to the history of, well, how did we go from one or two districts to, you know, double digits? And a lot of that has to do with these same issues. Well, if I create my own district, then I can separate my kids from other kids and I can put money into these schools and take care of this group of people and not worry about the others. And that the those property tax dollars coming from these homes will take care of these kids and put these other kids in a different class. That's effectively how we come up with these class and caste systems. Well, and, you know, just looking at Birmingham as an example, since we're talking about that, you have a lot of these wealthier, wider suburbs that, like you said, are taking those dollars and investing them in those schools. But in many instances, they're making those dollars in the city of Birmingham and, and then literally taking the wealth out of that city and taking it over the mountain. And then oftentimes it winds up being Birmingham taxpayers that end up footing the bill for public goods like a brand new stadium. And so you have poorer citizens who are footing the bill for public services and wealthier citizens who are investing their dollars into services that are just for wealthier Alabamians. So difficult when we see this population shift from the center city further out, because that means that our tax base is dwindling, but we still have to provide all of these services. And so that's why this redevelopment efforts in the center city are so important, because we've, we've got to bring people back to help prop up some of these services that are so sorely needed. It can certainly seem intractable at times. Are there certain policies that you think could be put in place on a state level or a federal level that would eliminate some of that disparity? I think there are always policies that can be put in place to make things better. I think the trouble, as we've seen historically, is making sure that we don't just try to develop this set it and forget it mentality. We created the policy. That should work fine. We created subprime lending. So that everyone could have access to home ownership. We didn't really regulate it very well to make sure that those borrowers weren't abused. Similarly, with any other type of policy, we have to kind of constantly tweak and make sure that the measures we put in place are having the outcomes that we intended. And if not, that doesn't mean that we throw it out. But we just have to constantly oversee, you know, another example is we've been talking a lot about home ownership is the land bank. It's a great idea, but oftentimes it's really, really hard to, to purchase a home out of the land bank. So the land bank makes a lot of sense where you gather up these blighted homes and put them under one umbrella and you hopefully make it easier for a low-income homeowner who wants to come into the city and wants to care for their property and build communities, you make it easier for them to do that. And at the same time, you take care of your blight issue. 
but we've seen lots and lots of problems. It doesn't quite work the way that it was intended. And so we're hoping that with new leadership and, and changes in the way it's managed, that will happen a little bit faster and work a little bit better. But that's just another example where we've got the right idea, but we we can't just walk away. We have to continue to be forward thinking in terms of what are the outcomes that we're seeking and what are the constant tweaks that are needed to get there. Yeah. Inertia, I guess, plays a role too when you've let this system kind of deteriorate or, well, deteriorate rate might not even be the right word. Maybe it's working exactly the way the system was set up to work. <laughs> but when the system has existed like this for so long, it, it's harder to correct it. What steps should our listeners be taking, you know, for their own personal finances during a uh, pandemic and a recession like this? Obviously, they should put pressure on on their elected officials to deal with some of the systemic issues, but what personal financial decisions would you, what should we be paying attention to? Well, in the context of this conversation, one of the things that I see frequently that's most concerning is this notion of, oh, I'm not going to qualify for that small business loan or that mortgage. All my friends have bad credit, so surely I have bad credit too because I'm black or brown. We've got to dispel that notion. We've got to get folks to understand how all of this works and actually fight for what they deserve. So if they are seeking to be a business owner or a homeowner, get the education to find out what it takes to do that. And don't just necessarily put your head in the sand and assume that that's not a reasonable aspiration. In terms of the specifics that we're seeing right now, my message is always don't panic. When we panic, we always do the wrong thing. When people started taking all their money out of the bank in 19, December of 1999 and burying it in the backyard or, or shifting it into gold, you know, that, that was a panic. So we have to maybe be a little bit more conservative in our spending and think a little bit further out, but don't panic make wise choices, always go back to the budget and and reevaluate your expenditures, but investigate the the help that's available. There is still CARES Act money that's available through December of 2020. And so many people just don't go out and ask for it. And sometimes, you know, a, a friend of mine once said, sometimes not getting comes from not asking. And so we have to be in a time like this, we really have to be vigilant about taking advantage of the assistance that's available. We do see that interest rates are are pretty low right now, but also jobless rates are, are pretty high. How risky is it to be making new expenditures on credit for things like homes, cars, even smaller items? You know, that's going to depend on the stability of your of your income, of course. But gosh, yes, mortgage rates are at an all-time low. Unfortunately, it's more of a seller's market, so it's it's difficult. Although you can get a great interest rate, it may may not be as easy to get at a great price on a home, but certainly if you have the income stability this would be a great time. And even if you're not looking to relocate or move from renting to owning, it may be a great time to refinance 
depending on the the terms of the deal, just to, again, you know, adjust your expenditures a little bit and take advantage of of interest rates. So at a minimum, I would say this is the time to reevaluate everything. Interest rates are low. What does that mean to me in terms of my borrowing? My income is unstable. What does that mean to me in terms of my expenditures? And really take a hard look at your your assets, your liabilities, and your expenses. So now we know how we got to this massive wealth gap. Basically, we've had a long history of those with money being able to make money and those without money falling further and further behind. So coming up after the break, Diane Standard explains what that looks like right now. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Diane Standard, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Great. Thank you for having me. We are in the midst of a recession brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. And I think it's fair to say it's quite unlike any recession we've probably seen in U.S. history. seems to have hit all sectors at once. We've seen millions of people across the United States have to apply for unemployment. Hundreds of thousands or millions of small businesses are at risk. And we've also seen kind of an unprecedented level of federal intervention in the form of a coronavirus relief package. A multi-trillion dollar bill passed in the spring. A lot of that's been sent directly to individuals in the form of coronavirus relief checks. But we're also seeing money going to small businesses. We're seeing money going to states, municipalities, tribal governments. Money's going to everybody, but it's not necessarily going to everybody equitably. You know, I think to understand the concerns about how this money is distributed, it's really connected to what inequities existed prior to the crisis and then the depths of the consequences of the crisis as it plays out. And so in terms of what you mentioned about the Great Recession, yes, we've been tracking the kind of the economic impacts of COVID-19 to the Deep South since since the beginning. And even one month into the crisis, we could see that the job losses uh, here in the Deep South were already far eclipsing those that happened following the 2008 Great Recession. And that's important for understanding not only the depths of the harm, but also thinking about what the road to recovery looks like for our region. And so just a little bit more context compared to the Great Recession is that many of the Deep South states were just returning to pre-recession job levels by the time COVID hit. So more than 10 years later, we were still in many ways, recovering from the previous crisis, not to mention the other disasters that happened between then. But just as one example, in Mississippi, Mississippi had not returned to its pre-recession job levels until October of 2019. That recovery for the Deep South was significantly longer than the recovery for the the country as a whole. And so that is just one example of the importance of giving 
these relief dollars to the communities that need them most right now. The more effective the relief efforts are now, the shorter the road to recovery for so many people and our region as a whole. And of course, within that are the vast existing racial and economic disparities that are rooted in this very long history of extraction and exclusion and discrimination that's happened in the South and elsewhere across the country, particularly for communities of color. And, you know, we've seen those disparities play out, uh, not only in the health consequences of COVID-19, but of course, in the economic consequences as well. In terms of just one example of the disparities in the economic consequences of COVID is, of course, in whose jobs are being lost and who is experiencing reductions in income. And uh, here in the Deep South, in each of the five Deep South states of Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi, over half of all Black households in those five states have experienced some loss of income since March 23rd. So by comparison for white households in these same five deep south states, they hover more around 40% of people experiencing losses in employment-related income. So still high, but not as high as we're seeing for Black and Latino households. So I think the context of the trillion-dollar relief package that's coming from Congress and coming from the federal government and being deployed to states and others throughout these ways you know, that's being deployed into an existing environment that's already experiencing vast inequalities. And what we're concerned about is that the money is being deployed in a way that follows these existing fault lines and perpetuates these existing patterns rather than being thought about as a way to help plug these holes or to really get to the communities that are experiencing the, the harm the most during this time. And so that's been our question as we look at what this money is being used for, where is it going, who's benefiting, who's being left behind, is to what extent is it perpetuating these existing uh, racial and economic disparities versus, you know, can it be used to actually fill some of these gaps and make sure that those who need the relief the most actually receive it? Well, I think you know, we should note that this pandemic is affecting everyone and this recession is affecting everyone. And, and so it's not necessarily a question of white Southerners shouldn't receive access to capital. But my understanding is that, you know, in some cases, you have to have wealth or your community has to have money in order to be able to access these life-saving funds in the first place. And so, you know, for some communities that were struggling before the pandemic hit, they're going to be struggling even more after this recession because they can't get access to some of these relief funds. Right. In so many ways, we're seeing that those already with resources and access are going to be the same people or entities that are able to access the relief. And those that don't have resources are going to struggle the most in getting access to the relief. And I think we saw that a little bit with the stimulus checks. Those that have access to a bank account were able to get their money more quickly. We saw that within the federal paycheck protection program, businesses with an established relationship with a bank were able to get access to those funds more quickly and others were largely shut shut out. And I think we're seeing that in some of the state level relief efforts as well, that those who have the ability to access the internet or access information about the programs are the ones who are able to get uh, the relief dollars. But those who are historically 
uh, left behind even before this crisis are, are the same ones who are going to struggle the most uh, to get these dollars now. And we're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars with the Paycheck Protection Program, some $500 billion that went directly to businesses. And we've been able to track and see that it's primarily going to white-owned businesses, despite the fact that Black-owned businesses actually declined more during this crisis? That's correct. So through the the Trillion Dollar CARES Act package passed by Congress, one of those programs was the Paycheck Protection Program, which in the end deployed over $500 billion of relief to businesses across the country. Through structural barriers within that program, particularly within the first two weeks of that program, hundreds of billions of dollars primarily flowed to to white-owned businesses and left smaller businesses and businesses owned by people of color shut out of that money. And one of the structural challenges was that the money was dependent on being deployed primarily through banks, which have their own long history of not serving communities of color very well. Another structural barrier included the fact that for the first seven days of the program, sole proprietors were not literally not able to apply for those funds. And that's really important for understanding the racial inequities that perpetuated because over 90% of all Black and Latino-owned businesses are sole proprietors. And literally by the time they were even able to get in the door to access the funds, hundreds of billions of dollars had already flowed out And then finally, another structural barrier creating these racial inequities is the fact that for nearly the entirety of the program, people with criminal backgrounds were had really severe restrictions to access the funds. And those did not get loosened until nearly the final week of the program. So those were just a few examples of some of the structural barriers embedded within the Paycheck Protection Program, which will lead to hundreds of billions of dollars flowing to white-owned businesses that businesses owned by people of color simply were not able to access during that time. One way in which these barriers were overcome is through the participation of community development financial institutions and minority-led financial institutions who were able to advocate for changes within the Paycheck Protection Program and were able to help businesses they are already serving in their own communities get access to these monies. And through CDFIs and minority-led financial institutions, they were able to deploy about $17 billion of those paycheck protection programs to businesses that highly likely would have otherwise been been left out. Do we know how the money has been distributed in the Deep South? Are we seeing maybe more equitable distribution among businesses in Southern states, or is it is it about the same? So one of the other challenges with the paycheck protection program is that the data has been slow to be published. The Small Business Administration did finally publish data about the loans and where they went, but there's a lot of holes that still need to be filled in that data, particularly minority ownership. But that's an analysis we're still we're still sorting through as it relates to the flow of Paycheck Protection Program dollars into the Deep South and how equitable that, that was. But we can guess from the large-scale patterns of what happened that we would imagine that some of the same concerns that apply nationally are present here in the South as well. Well, and as we were hearing earlier on this episode from Stephanie, government deciding 
who gets access to capital can have decades long effects. And, and, you know, people who right now maybe don't have access to some of these paycheck protection program funds, maybe having to take out credit card debt or debt through a payday lender or something like that and can get kind of caught in a bigger cycle that gets very difficult to get out of. What are some alternatives in states like Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, for some minority-owned businesses who are trying to keep their head above water? Yeah, so for businesses still seeking aid or relief or access to capital, a great source is a community development financial institutions or minority depository institutions that probably exist right in their community. A community development financial institution is a mission-based lender that through its very existence has a charge to be serving low-income communities and other communities otherwise underserved by the mainstream financial institution and minority depository institutions are banks and credit unions that are led by people of color. So uh, community development financial institutions and minority depository institutions are one source of helpful capital for those seeking relief or assistance during this time. I think it's also important to note that states did try to provide their own set of relief as well to try to fill in the gaps left by PPP. And so we have seen over the last few months that deep South states, these five deep South states, allocated over $1.1 billion towards small business relief that could be available to businesses still needing help uh, due to the impacts of COVID. And so that's another place where we've been digging in to understand where did this additional aid go, who's benefiting, and we know what are changes if needed uh, that could be made before these funds run out later on this year. What have you seen? Which states are doing it well? Which states leave something to be desired? And which states are just not doing it well at all? You know, I think it's pretty notable that Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Tennessee collectively allocated more than a billion dollars of relief towards small businesses. I'm not sure that's something we have ever seen before. And so within each state, we're seeing amounts like Mississippi allocating $300 million towards small businesses and others like Alabama, $120 million. So these are quite significant amounts to reach the struggles that we know small businesses are having. And so we've seen quite a variation of success uh, within these individual state efforts. And, you know, one concern we have seen, for example, in Mississippi is even though Mississippi had the largest amount of all five states allocated towards small business relief, and they were among the first to do it, they have lagged both in terms of how fast they've been able to get that money out and the relatively small amount of relief they provided to small businesses on average. So just as one example, even though Mississippi had made these $300 million relief available in early June, within by two months later, uh, they had only deployed less than 10% of that full $300 million. And we know that with each passing day, that a small business is unable to access relief, that increases the chances they may close their doors and not come back. And that's particularly concerning in light of the disparate impact that COVID is having on small businesses owned by people of color, particularly Black-owned businesses. So we know that since the pandemic, more than 40% of Black-owned businesses have closed compared to just 17% of 
of white-owned businesses. And an important element of Mississippi's program that the legislature created was to include $40 million specifically to prioritize aid to minority and women-owned businesses. But the delay in their spending of the money ultimately undermined that prioritization of that $40 million. So even as we sit here today, Mississippi has not yet deployed even a full $40 million of grants available to Mississippi's businesses. So they've made this money available, but have been delayed in distributing it. So it's like theoretical money that's not actually in people's hands. That's correct. There's millions of dollars not yet in the hands of Mississippi small businesses that need it. And it certainly is not due to lack of demand. Within the first two months of the program, more than 20,000 Mississippi small businesses applied for the help, totaling over $100 million worth of relief requests. And yet, again today, only about 10,000 businesses have received that aid, totaling just about $30 million through that grant program. Mississippi is not the only state where these concerns exist. I think it's really important to point out what's happening in Tennessee. Tennessee's small business relief program had racial disparities built into it from the very beginning. So before dollars even flowed out the door, it was possible to see how the bulk of Tennessee's Black-owned businesses would simply not be able to access tens of millions of dollars that white-owned businesses would be able to access. And This program is an example of the importance of understanding how pre-existing racial disparities feed into current relief efforts and how those relief efforts would perpetuate those racial disparities. The Tennessee's program was built on a formula based on businesses' annual gross sales, regardless of the impact that COVID had on those businesses. And so even prior to COVID, we could see how in Tennessee that the average Black-owned business had average gross sales of about $47,000 a year, but the average White-owned business had annual gross sales of $500,000 a year. So when you have a program that was going to be based on, you know, payment sizes would be based on the amount of gross sales, you could automatically see that White-owned businesses would get larger relief payments than Black-owned businesses simply due to the pre-existing conditions, not in regards to how deep COVID's impact was for that community or for those businesses. And that data is bearing out those concerns as that program is being implemented now. But we predicted that before any dollars even floated out the door. And this example that's happening within Tennessee is, again, a repeat of, of history, quite similar to what we saw in Louisiana and the Road Home Program following Hurricane Katrina, when relief payments to homeowners was based on pre-existing property values, where historically Black homeowners have lower property values than white homeowners. And, you know, changes due to litigation, violations of the Fair Housing Act, that Road Home Program was forced to change its funding formula to be based on the amount of damage incurred rather than based on uh, pre-existing conditions that had racial disparities baked into them. Just like homeownership, small business creation is a source of significant economic activity, as well as one of the most important vehicles for uh, communities of color to build and maintain wealth 
over time. Now, you know, I'm a journalist. Money isn't necessarily my strong suit. Finances aren't my area of strength. But if I understand you correctly, basically, this means that businesses that were already making a lot of money before the recession, which predominantly were white-owned businesses in Tennessee, were eligible for more money in state funds and the allocation of federal funds through this program than businesses that were making less money, which were predominantly Black-owned businesses. Now, somebody might hear that and say, well, you know, if you are losing more money, then you should be eligible to receive more money. But in reality, the businesses that were making a lot more money were probably better positioned to survive than the businesses that were making less gross money. Yes. So businesses with larger and higher gross sales prior to the pandemic received larger grant payments than businesses with smaller amounts of gross sales. And given the racial disparities in those amounts prior to COVID, it means that primarily white-owned businesses were going to be able to access the bulk of the funds compared to Black-owned businesses that historically have lower lower sales and revenue amounts. And again, there's a whole history of uh, discriminatory practices in terms of Black-owned businesses being able to access capital and things that limit growth over time. And so that alone is troubling that the grant formula from the beginning was based on an inherently racially biased indicator and troubling that the payment based on pre-COVID gross sales has no connection at all to the expenses a business incurred to adjust to the COVID pandemic, which makes that different than any of the other states in our region and even the PPP which was based on expenses and need to survive the pandemic, not what a business's pre-existing position was. And and we're seeing similar systemic inequities furthered through ways that other coronavirus relief monies are being distributed. For example, the municipalities that are able to pay back loans are able to receive more money early on than maybe communities in the Delta or the Black Belt that are already struggling. Yes, that's correct. So going back to the way that these trillion dollars in relief money is being distributed, we're seeing in so many ways that those who already have access to resources are going to be more easily able to access the relief funds than those without resources. And we've seen that with the distribution of the stimulus checks, you know, those with access to a bank account were able to get their money faster. We've seen that with the Paycheck Protection Program, where businesses that had pre-existing relationships with banks were more able to easily access the PPP program. And another way is even local governments, where local governments who already have cash on hand to pay for COVID-related expenses are going to have an easier time accessing relief dollars to pay for some of those expenses. So nearly we can pull any thread of these relief dollars and see these similar stories. And in terms of how that's working for local governments in particular is that for every state in the Deep South that has used its coronavirus relief fund dollars to support local governments has done so on a reimbursement only basis. So local governments are going to have to spend the money first in order to access the relief money that's available to them. So for local governments that are already cash strapped or already struggling prior to the crisis, they're going to be the same ones struggling now to access the relief funds to help mitigate the crisis. 
And we're seeing this as a particular concern in communities that historically have been excluded and overlooked time and time and time again in the Black Belt of Alabama and the Delta of Mississippi and other states as well, that counties and cities that have been extracted from and excluded and discriminated in terms of access to capital or federal dollars or state relief dollars, they're the ones with the least amount of cushion uh, to withstand the crisis to begin with, experiencing quite deeply the health impacts of COVID and are the same ones who are going to have the highest burden to be able to access their own taxpayer dollars to provide what their community needs in terms of contract tracing or PPE or rental assistance or other things that will help people stay home and stay safe and stay alive during this crisis. It seems like we're seeing happen in this crisis the same thing that we saw happen in the last crisis and the same thing that we've seen happen over the course of the last several hundred years of the United States existence, which is people with access to capital are able to better weather economic downturns and further accumulate capital and people who are kind of on the outside of that system fall further and further to the margins. Is there a path forward? You, you work for hope. Do you have hope that there's a way to kind of break this cycle? Yes, I think we have to have hope that there is a different way possible. And we know that there are ways of actually making relief funds work for the communities that are hardest hit. We can see that in the way that CDFIs are deploying these funds. We can see that in the way communities are speaking up for, for what they need. And I think as those who are making decisions about where relief dollars are needed and how they will be spent, it's critical to be listening to the very communities that are hit hardest by COVID and who have been too long overlooked and ignored in other types of funding decisions and political decisions and decisions to access to capital long before COVID hit. And I think that was our hope in releasing these papers and talking about it now before the funding has evaporated so that policymakers and community leaders and other stakeholders can come together to really make sure that relief efforts going forward are able to course correct and make the changes that are needed now to shorten the road to recovery for, for everybody, not just those who are already well off before this crisis hit. Well, Diane, thank you for your time today. We will direct people to this report so they can learn more about this and how to act on it. Great. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Thanks to Dr. Stephanie Yates and Diane Standard for joining us this week. If you still got questions about finances, check out our new video series, Money Talks. Each episode, Reckons Anna Bain walks through some of the biggest questions about wealth and the economy. You can find it on Facebook, Twitter, and on YouTube. This show was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited, as always, by Abby Gibson from Edit Audio. Hey, if you want to be able to talk about these topics with your friends, but you don't know quite where to start, send them our show and ask them to subscribe. The more people who listen, the more we can have better conversations about the South with the South. They can find it wherever they get their podcasts, including now on Amazon Music. It's brand new. Help us climb their charts and get some of that Bezos money. And until next week, thanks for reckoning with us.